Welcome, everyone, to our featured podcast on thought leadership with Dr. Ray McKinley. Dr. McKinley is an expert on leadership and character development. Let's join the conversation now. Hello, everyone. This is Ray McKinley. Welcome to Ride the Elephant Today, our weekly podcast. And I'm very excited today because I have a very special guest, a good friend for a long time, an educator, a great parent. And she's just a wonderful young lady. Very excited having Julie Book with us today. Julie is the Director of Student Life at Faith Lutheran Middle School and High School in Las Vegas, Nevada. So welcome to Michigan, and I'm glad you're here, Julie. Say hi. Hi. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me, Ray. I'm excited to endeavor into our discussion today. Yeah, it's going to be great. You know, Julie, we've been talking lately Last time I talked with Brian, my son, about anxiety, and we see anxiety at a high level in the high school student, and I want to have a conversation around some of that. When I asked you this question, what do you see as the greatest challenge facing our youth today, you said what? Well, I think that it's apathy to some level. It's this great divide between apathy about some of the things that our generation cared about versus passion for some of the things that our generation maybe dropped the ball on. Yeah. Can you give us some examples of how you see that play out in a high school student? Well, I believe that they have had a relatively easier life than we have, so they haven't built up much resilience and stamina to handle hard things, and so they are quick to throw their arms up in the air and just not pursue and not work harder. In some cases, this is obviously a huge generalization. And then on the other hand, though, they have opinions about a lot of things, mostly political and social things they have a lot of opinions about. And so they tend to come off passionate about those things. And one thing in particular that sticks out to me is the environment. Like they seem to be very passionate about recycling and taking care of the earth and population growth and the ozone layer and gas and all of that kind of stuff. But they're not maybe so ready to just work hard in their daily. They're apathetic about like their schoolwork. They don't really see the importance of it. Those are some examples. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, do you think it has something to do with the way that, what the focus of the educational system has been in the last decade or two? And when we look at the science projects in the school, I remember my kids coming home with science projects related to the environment. So do you think their programming that's done in the educational system is highlighting those points and causing the kids to respond with concern in that regard? Well, I think, yes, that because I think truthfully that it's more about the fact that they have so much more information given to them at a younger age. I believe that when maybe when I was growing up, our parents did know about those things, but we didn't. It was more like the adult conversation. And now because of the internet, social media, communication worldwide, knowing what's going on everywhere, they have a more of an awareness and they can form an opinion about it. But unfortunately, they're not always getting the full information. 
with which to form an opinion. I think as far as education, probably the biggest factor I believe in education that the educators at the secondary level have done is we've created this fear in parents that if their kids don't get perfect grades, they're not going to get into the perfect school and that's going to affect their entire lives. And they're afraid for them to make the wrong decision or not have an opportunity available to them because they failed at something. And I think that's probably where, like you talked about science projects and people came home and told their parents they had a science project and how many mothers and fathers did those science projects for their kids instead of just letting their kids do the science project, it wasn't good enough. And so they feel like they need to step in. And then that sends a message to the kid that what I'm doing isn't good enough. And the decision I'm making to create this project isn't the right decision because my parents didn't agree that it was the right thing to do for my project. And so they learn at a young age that their decision-making abilities are not the best decision-making abilities. So they just get frustrated and throw their hands up in the air. And I think that's all part of You know, it's interesting, you know, you talk about decision-making as it relates to that. One of the things that I was struck by as I was teaching high school students as well was their self-awareness that they were poor decision-makers. I mean, they didn't even profess to be good decision-makers. They knew as seniors they were poor decision-makers. And basically, they looked to their parents to make the decision. And we see that play out in today's society. And the interesting thing about the decision-making process, what I found is they really go to their parents or they go to their friends and they almost are like pollsters or they're canvassers. They canvass the opinion that other people have and they make their decision based on the beliefs, values, and principles that other people have because they're asking them, what would you do? Well, that person gives the answer based on their own beliefs, values, and principles. The other person they ask gives them the answer based on their beliefs, values, and principles. And they're basically not even nurturing or growing or maturing their beliefs, values, and principles. So they can be a decisive person and a good decision maker. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yes, it is. Exactly. So instead of having a parent sit down and say, okay, what's the data or the information you've gathered to make this decision? And what decision would you make? Parents influence the decision, as you said, friends influence the decision based on where they're coming from and not necessarily where that individual. I do remember one time our middle child was accepted into the University of Michigan and we went to parent and student orientation at the University of Michigan when he was a freshman entering and they told the students at that time you need to remember that you have counselors available to you. And we're not talking about the counselors that are your friends, that are your peers, because your peers have about the same amount of information as you have. But there are people here at the school that are here to serve you that have much more information to help you make a better, more informed decision. It was a big deal. And that was in the fall of 2008 that he was entering. So here we are, what, 13 years later, and now we're seeing the repercussions of students making decisions based on the counseling they're getting from their peers instead of the counseling they're getting from maybe a school student affairs professional who would have experience to draw from and help give them better information 
to make better decisions. So Well, just having the decision or making the decision to go speak to someone, yes. a wise counsel, somebody that has more experience than they have, is a challenge for these young people. Yes, you it know. is. And this is a loaded question. Yeah. What have we not done as educators and as parents that we need to start doing and start incorporating in our presentation of and really teaching our kids and our students to be better decision makers? What are some of the things you think you'd like to see happen or one of the things that you have tried to do in your educational process? So recently, I just graduated with a master's degree in student affairs administration. And as a part of that learning process, I figured out how unprepared for social decisions our students are when they're leaving high school. So I went to the counseling department and I said, I think we need to talk to these kids a little bit about some of the decisions they're going to make when they're a freshman in college or when they move out of their parents' house. And we really need to impress upon parents giving your students practice in decision making. One of the things my husband and I did when our kids were in high school is we kind of took away all the rules except for curfew. And that was a decision purely based on the fact that we needed to be in bed and have better sleep than allowing them to stay out till the wee hours of the morning. And secondly, because nothing good ever happens after midnight. Right. But the car leaves the house at 710. If you want to ride, you're in it. We're not telling you what time you're waking up. You're setting your own alarm. You're showing up at whatever time you're ready. If you want breakfast, you're making your breakfast. If you need laundry, you're doing your laundry. And just in those few little responsibilities that now we've just kind of washed our hands of as a parent, they had to start practicing making decisions. Am I somebody who needs to go to bed at 10 o'clock and get a really good night's sleep? Or am I somebody who can stay up till 2 a.m. in the morning and study and still get up in time to get into the car and get my ride to school? So we didn't dictate what time you go to bed, what time you wake up, those kinds of things. And I remember I didn't do that because of our own accord. I was working as an admissions counselor in college at the time, and I remember giving a tour to a student who asked me what happens if he misses class because he overslept. And I said, well, you miss out on the information. Your mom isn't here to wake you up and make sure that you get to class. And he was really shocked, like he didn't know how to handle that new responsibility. And it just occurred to me at that time, wow, even in the simplest of things, we're not giving our children time to practice making decisions in some of the basic life things. And I think obviously that snowballs into the bigger life things. Well, let me play the typical role of a parent, which is, well, one of the ways I want to show my love to my children is to make it easier for them. Right. And I'm going to do things for them. I'm going to make their lunch. Right. I'm going to do their laundry. I'm going to help them with their homework. I'm going to remind them of things right. that could create a consequence that they aren't going to like. So uh, we find that parents come in and rescue the student. We've seen, we've heard terms about helicopter parenting. Yes. We've heard terms of lawnmower parenting, where we clear the path is a great way of saying it. What is it about parents that we feel that that is our love language? That is the way we're going to show our love to our kids. And we just don't understand the debilitating effect of that on their decision making, on their esteem and their confidence. So how can we appeal to the parents who might be listening in of some of the things that they might do 
to change the way that they're looking at the situation because rescuing or enabling, we've always heard that term quite a bit, we enable our children, yeah. is how, what the devastating effects of that is. Right. So what are some of the things that we can do in that regard? Well, I think the truthfully, the only thing is, I guess you have to determine the context of your family and your family situation, because obviously from family to family, different things work and maybe just start giving them a little bit of decision-making, a little bit, and then a little bit more, and then a little bit more, and then just talking to them about the effects of their decision. Another rule, if you will, we had in our house is you have one rescue. So if you call home and say, mom, I left my test or my homework or my lunch or whatever, you get one a semester instead of every day that you call me because you're gonna remember the second time that you know I can't call my mom and get her to bring me up this thing. It's going to teach you to do a better job of being organized in the morning before you leave the house. Does that mean that I did that perfectly? No, no one's gonna do that perfectly because it depends on the context of the situation, I think. But I think to just check yourself and say, am I doing that every time? Am I rescuing them every time? Because right. my love language actually is serving others. Right. And so that was a difficult thing for me. But if you just rescue them all the time, they're just learning someone's going to take care of them That's and right. do it for them. This reminds me of a story and it has to do with your son. Oh, wow. <laughs> of course. Back when he was in, in my class. Okay. And after being in the class for a couple months, he was getting frustrated with his teacher, me. Because the students would ask questions and he would ask questions and I would ask another question. I would not give him the answer. I made them critically think it through and develop their own answer. And then we would have start having conversations about what they came up with. But the class and every class I had, it just wasn't your son. Every class yeah. I had, because my teaching was so different than everything they had up until 11th grade. And then I taught 12th grade and they, it, this was so new to them. And they got so mad at me. They would go to the principal's office and complain, Dr. McKinley, this. They'd go yeah. home to their parents, Dr. McKinley won't give us this, Dr. Yeah. McKinley, this, Dr. McKinley, that. And your son had enough nerve to actually challenge me in class. Yes. And I thought, this is great. This is <laughs> awesome. I love it. So uh, I just said, you know, you want me to give you the answer. He would say to me, I just want you to give me the answer so I know the answer so I can prepare for the test yeah. and I can get the right answer and yeah. I can get my A and move on. Yeah. Yeah. Now you got to be honest with me now. Did I he know. come home and complain about Dr. McKinley and his teaching ways as a student in a senior year? And how did you respond to that? Number one, no. But I think that because our children were raised, since my husband was principal and an educator at that time in particular, um, that the teachers were always right. So it was the respect of the adults. So our kids did not come home and complain about their teachers because they knew they weren't gonna get any sympathy from us. But we had that insight because Steve was in the education world. And yeah. so we understood that. So no, he didn't. But I will tell you as a result of that class, he has continued to tell us how high schools need to teach students how to critically think because he got a taste of that before he went off to college and that prepared him for college more than anything else because when he got to college then it was like here's the book the test is going to be on anything in this book but the professor doesn't lecture on everything that's in the book right, right? right. so you have to figure out what is he going to test us on, right? 
So having that class prepared him very well. And yes, Jordan was one of those typical kids with regard to education because he had set a goal in second grade that he wanted to get into the University of Michigan. And he knew that he was going to have to really perform well because at that time, universities were looking at test scores and grade point averages, and that was the determining factor of getting into college. Now that has changed. And as you know, in the education world now, not all universities are using, they're not even requiring SAT and ACT test scores anymore, some of them. And so it's a much bigger and better picture. But at that time, when those kids were in school, it was all about what grades you got and what your test scores were. And so he was driven to reach that goal. Right. And every decision that he made was all about reaching that goal. You know, the other thing I did to upset Jordan and my other students, I just wasn't picking on Jordan. I was picking on all of them. I'm sure. I would tell them something that I knew was not even true. It right. was wrong, but it sounded true. Yeah. And I made it sound true. And being the authority, yep. as you said, that I represented as in front of the classroom, everything that fell off my lips was true. Right. And I wanted to teach them that not everything that falls off the teacher's lip is true. Right. Especially when you go to college. Right. So I would purposely do that. And some people accepted it hook, line, and sinker, and some people challenged me. And through the process, we were teaching the student how right. to ask better questions, yep. to critically think it through. Yeah. Just don't take it is face value because that's going to get yourself in trouble. Right. You're not going to be successful in college and in life right. if you continue to just accept everything that people say to you. Right. Because we all have a different perspective of that as well. Right. And our perspective, even after we hear it, may be different. And we have to process it through in order to critically think it through before we can really take that on. One of the things that I always would say to the students, I said, why do you listen to that dogma? You know, the dogma of your teachers. Because I believe that a lot of what teachers present is dogma. And it will stay dogma until you own it. Because yeah. dogma means that someone else is pontificating their belief, their values, their principles, their knowledge on you. And that's dogma until you understand it to the point where you can personally own it then it's no longer dogma. Right, right. And of course, we both experienced the Christian education in the Christian school. You're currently in the Christian school. And one of the things I would see is people would take on their faith. And clearly, it was not they weren't owning it. Right. We see that evidence by so many students today taking on what they've been taught through elementary school, through the church, through the high school, by their parents. And they go off to college and they walk away from their faith. Right. And that's painful. Right. I, as a parent, have had that happen. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's painful. What have we learned as parents, or what have you learned as a parent, as you watch this unfold in your own children and in my children and other children? What are we missing as educators? Do the kids walk away and see it as dogma? And they just, they don't want to think it through? Or do we not give them a chance to think it through? What is going on? Because that one student said to me one time, you know, teachers do a great job teaching me what to think, but they don't teach me very well how to, how think. to think. Yeah. yeah. 
And so do you have any comments about that? And what are you doing as a advocate for kids today in the high school setting that's trying to change that or bringing awareness to that? Well, as somebody who had a little bit of experience of working at the collegiate level um, and seeing the whole admissions process and then learning the realities of what is going on behind the scenes and what educators have done, we need to find a good way to teach students to work with your whole heart and to put in effort and into the learning experience and into learning the knowledge instead of doing it just to get the A, to get the good grade, but what are you actually learning and what are you actually taking in? I feel like what education has done is, well, if you don't get straight A's and you don't get good grades, you're never gonna get into the college and it's gonna affect your entire life. And what we didn't know before that was so many decisions are made in the background of universities about, well, maybe we're gonna only take, here's an example. Why does a male entering into a college nursing program have to have a less GPA and a less ACT score than a female does? Because for so many years, colleges and universities were trying to build up the amount of male nurse students that came in. So if you were a girl and you were working really hard because you had this dream school but that school decided we're only going to take 20 girls this year and we're going to take 40 boys, that's completely out of your control. And no matter how hard you worked in high school to get those good grades and those good scores, that doesn't matter. And that happens all the time everywhere. So my full view context of all of this for our students is to say that doesn't give you an excuse to not work hard and not put your full effort into it. You should still do that but you also should not put that huge pressure on yourself. You talk about anxiety. Don't put that anxiety on yourself because some decision about you not getting into your dream school may have nothing to do with you. And yet you're suffering the anxiety of it because you feel like you have control and you really yeah. don't. Yeah. And I think just education, parents, the whole process has created this anxiety. You got to do good. You got to be involved in a hundred different things in order to make your resume look great. And that's huge, adding unnecessary anxiety to students. And let's just face it. Some people are naturally stronger than other people just by nature. And I think that if you're somebody who maybe isn't a super strong person and you have all of that being thrown at you, it's harder for you to deal with it. And then we cop out and use it as, oh, it's anxiety instead of, you know what? Sometimes life is just hard and it's okay. Yeah. You know, you're an optimistic person as a rule. Yes. And as we talked at the beginning, we said, you know, there was two things that we saw, this dichotomy that existed in students, this apathy mm -hmm. and this passion. Mm -hmm. We've been talking a lot about the, the passion side or what mm -hmm. it takes to have mm -hmm. that and what we can do to help develop that in a student. What about the apathetic side? So explain a little bit more about that. Okay, well, I think that comes as a result of a lack of self-confidence. So sometimes students are looking around at what the world is patting people on the back for. And if I'm not a good athlete, or I'm not a great entertainer or performer on the stage, 
then what am I and where are my gifts? And so my ministry at the school is all centered around 1 Peter 4.10, which talks about how God has given different gifts to different people and that those gifts are for use of helping your neighbor. And that doesn't have to just be a biblical thing. That's true across the board. Everyone has different gifts. And I think that when we celebrate a certain kind of gift over another kind of gift, that leads to the confidence level of a child. You know, you love football. So maybe one of your children is a really awesome football player and maybe the other one has no skills with football. They're not interested or whatever, but it may appear to the child who does not have the football skill that you favor the child who has it because that's something you understand and you relate to. And it's the story they tell themselves. So the other child tells themselves, my dad doesn't appreciate my gifts and abilities because they're not skills and abilities that he appreciates or that he understands or whatever. And so they tell themselves that they're not good at things and then that affects their confidence level. And then that also ultimately affects their ability to work harder at stuff. They just, I'm never gonna be that good football player. My dad's never gonna love me as much as he loves my brother because my brother has these abilities, right? Mm -hmm. And they just continue to tell themselves inside that they're not good, they don't have any value. And I think what we need to do is realize what we're doing to our kids when we do those kinds of things. I have bazillions of stories of times when I was recruiting, how a family would decide to send their student to a completely different school because maybe they got this much financial aid, but it was called an athletic scholarship. And we gave them this much financial aid because we really wanted their child at our school. And they would choose the school with the athletic scholarship just so they could walk around and tell everybody. Even though it was a lower value. Even though it was a lower amount of money. But there was more prestige in being able to say as a parent, my child is going to this school on an athletic scholarship versus my child is going to this school. What is it about parents that want to post on their back of their bumpers, my student is an honor student at XYZ? No, because I think that's a natural thing. We're all proud of our kids, right? Mm. So I think it's just natural. You're proud of your children. You're proud of what they do and you want to cheer them on. I think the hard part is if it's not what the world thinks is the greatest gift, then we kind of maybe sit back a little bit and we don't share that. So when does a child see that garnering the praise and the proud feelings of their parents and teachers and other people, why do they see that as a motivating force? Yeah. That doesn't come from within. That's coming right. from it's without. Extrinsic. You know, by doing this, when do we transition them out of it? They, they just all of a sudden in their adult world, they wake up someday in an office where the boss isn't praising them left and right and they aren't getting patted on the back and giving Twinkies at lunch for their <laughs> great behavior. And all of a sudden they're shocked. Right. They don't appreciate me. The, the most common thing I hear in the workforce is I don't feel appreciated. Right. Well, What do you mean you don't feel appreciation? The fact that you made a difference for this person's life, they came in, they had a problem. And in my case, they were in pain, had a toothache, and you helped facilitate and had them walk out the door with free of pain. Right. Why isn't that enough for you to feel good and have respect for yourself and the contribution you're making? Right. 
why are we waiting for the boss to pat you on the back and say, you did a good job? And this is the problem that we see as these millennial generation comes into the workforce is we have to keep feeding this need, this approval addiction. And we feed it by telling them we're proud of them. And we feed it by telling them that you're great. Instead of saying, how do you feel about what just happened here? And then they say, boy, I feel really good about the difference I made for that person. When they can start recognizing that they made a contribution, their soul, their spirit, their skill level, their ability to communicate made a difference in this person's life. That's contribution. Yes, it is. And that's real. Yes, it is. Instead of this other thing that we're doing. And I think parents and educators really, really spoil the whole mix by doing what they do. Well, I think part of it is you have to assess students in school. So until you figure out a different way of assessing students, I don't know how that's ever going to change because, you know, you got a good grade, you get an A, you feel good about yourself. You didn't do well, you got an F, you don't feel good about yourself. I think that's contributed to that, that you have to assess students. And assessing in education is really just about, are we the teachers doing our job? Are we mm-hmm. preparing our kids for the next level, right? For the next grade or in this section of math, what do they need to know before they go to their next level of math? And are we preparing them? And the only way to do that is to assess them. And then obviously it's the whole A, B, C, D, E, F game, right? Well, what's wrong so, with self-assessing? Well, there isn't anything done with that. And in fact, Why I not? think more and more people are using peer assessment with in classrooms, which is helpful because they understand that, okay, you might be really good at math, but I'm really good at English. So peer tutoring and peer assessing are pretty popular right now for that reason, because, hey, you're really good at speaking English or writing, and this person's really smart at math, and we're helping each other. And again, that's your God-given gift, and we're here to help each other with our God-given gifts. Not everyone's going to be great at everything. So I think part of the problem is the situation of assessment. But I also have another theory about, forgive me for not remembering dates, but when the car companies started crashing and manufacturing roles started crashing and companies started laying off people who had worked for companies for 30 years, 25 years. And in some cases without their retirement funds because the companies had gone bankrupt, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm curious about the fact that are the millennials smart enough to be thinking, my parents worked for 30 years for this company, and then because the market crashed and they lost their job and they lost their retirement, I watched them pour their heart and soul into their job and into that company, and they were loyal to that company for so many years of their lives, and then just at the end, nothing. The millennials are not going to do that. So they're always looking out for themselves because they don't trust that maybe that company is going to be there forever. You know, people talk a lot about how they expect to be paid for everything. Well, it's because they don't trust that that future promotion or that future bonus or that future retirement fund is going to be there for them. And so I think that's part of it, but that's my own self thought through theory. I have no data to support that whatsoever, (laughs) except to wonder why does it matter so much that you get acknowledged for everything you do 
and by acknowledged paid in my case. Mm -hmm. So like we have teachers who have been the advisor for a honor society for years and never got paid a dollar for it. And now they're retiring out and we need to replace that advisor. And so obviously we're looking to the younger generation to start filling these roles. Well, they want to get paid for it. It's like, no, I'm not going to give more than my teaching duty. I need this extra payment if I'm going to use my time to fulfill that role. I think that's just all part of it. And I don't understand it. There's no pride of I made the contribution. It's I want to get paid for it now. So I don't know the answer to that. I don't know how you just continue to tell a child these are where your gifts at. They may not be worldly acknowledged gifts, but they are important and they do make a difference. And I don't know. I think you just have to acknowledge it. Yeah. So Yeah, that's an interesting awareness you have. I like it. And it ties into what we're talking about. And one of the things it ties into is the anxiety kids feel because of all of this. So if you were to describe what is anxiety, what do you see this young student or the high school student be most anxious about and how are they dealing with that? Well, my role is what happens outside of the classroom, right? So being acknowledged for what your gifts and abilities are outside of the classroom. So if you're on an academic team that wins a state championship, It's similar to if you're on a football team that wins a state championship, you get acknowledged for that. You feel like you contributed to something you contributed to your school. The anxiety part for me is, again, this all goes back to their getting prepared for college. You know, now I said earlier that colleges are looking for more than just grades and more than just your ACT or SAT test scores. They're also looking for service hours. How much service have you done? They're also looking for how did you contribute to your community that you were in before? Because more than likely how you contributed before is how you're going to contribute now. And so kids have thousands of things on their resume because they feel like they can never do enough to make sure they got that right thing on their resume. And so the anxiety comes from, I believe, They're just plain tired. They're doing way too much. And they're doing it because they think they have to do that in order for them to get that dream school entry or whatever. The other thing I think is comes from pride of parents, praising for what they're involved in, what they've achieved, that part, not so much your work ethic is a really important thing to praise with your kids. But we don't grade on effort anymore. We used to when we were younger, right? But we don't grade on effort anymore. So maybe we need to reconsider, you know, how we're grading, like just grading on production versus grading on effort. And I know that there are teachers out there that do do that in different ways. Maybe they give that kid the break when the kid needs the break, right? Mm -hmm. Because I know your effort and I know you just don't always blow this off. The other part of it is I think that anxiety, if you want to use that term, comes from trust. They don't trust what's happening in the world. They don't trust what's happening with their teachers because maybe teachers aren't consistent. Maybe parents aren't consistent. And so you never really know what to expect. And so they don't really have a trust. When I was growing up, I trusted my mom and my dad. One of the things that would bother me to death is when my parents would say, because I told you so, or because I said so. And I remember challenging my dad on that one day, and he said to me, there are certain things at certain age levels that you're not ready to make decisions about. 
when you are, we will give you the information and help you to understand why it would be important. But you're too young to understand that right now. Right. And then they would feed me information, obviously, as I grew older and older and older. And you just learn to trust that your parents had your back and that it was about you and not about them. And I'm not so sure kids have that anymore. You know, I think that they get a little bit too much information. Like I said earlier, they have access to so much more information as children that we didn't have as children. And so I think there's a little bit of mistrust in there and security. And then that produces anxiousness. What about anxiety related to not getting the approval that they're looking for? Do you see that play out? Oh, absolutely. Because I have kids come into my office and it's heartbreaking to see an 18-year-old young man come into your office and cry about the fact that they cannot possibly do everything that's on their resume, but they're afraid to disappoint their parents. And that's self-induced anxiety. And a lot of times, obviously, my answer to them is you need to talk to your parents, right? You sure. need to tell your parents the truth that this was maybe just too much for you to handle. And maybe what you're really interested in versus what your parents are interested in for you and having those open and honest, hard conversations. Yeah. You know, we've been talking about this. I think this is a great topic and it's a great discussion. And and I'm really enjoying it with you from your perspective, being in the educational system and raising the boys you have and watching all of your students grow up and yeah. go through these experiences and hearing what they're going through. I want this to tie into something more tangible. I think a lot of this is very tangible. I think people can relate to it. How can we better teach three things, personal responsibility, authenticity, and contribution? We've talked a lot about contribution, yeah. you know, and I think in the context of these three items, what can we do to better prepare young people? What can we as parents do to prepare our children to take personal responsibility, be authentic, and make a contribution? Well, I think the order of those words would be authenticity, contribution, and then personal responsibility. And the reason I say that is authenticity, you have to know who you are. You have to be able to embrace the gifts that you're given and be okay with them and not wish that you had other gifts. Right. So I think that if parents and kids are realistic about what their gifts are and that they're okay with their gifts, they will have more self-confidence and then they can be those authentic people. Okay. Mm -hmm. So then once you understand where your gifts are, you have a responsibility to use them to contribute, right? Are you going to do it right all the time? No, you're not, but mm -hmm. that's okay. Because guess what? You're growing up and learning and in a mode of self-discovery. And so it's okay to not do it perfectly every time. It's okay to mess up. It's okay to fail in your contribution. But when you do, then you have to own that failure and understand why you failed and be okay with knowing that even though you failed, you're not loved any more or less because of that failure. And I feel like sometimes maybe we need to remind ourselves that failure is okay it's not the end of the world. Making a wrong decision or a bad decision is not the end of the world. 
people don't have hard conversations because they're worried if I tell you something that I don't like about you, or maybe that in the context of whatever it is, I don't think you're doing correctly. We have to be able to have the kind of relationship with other people where we feel safe to say those things. And I know that what I'm going to say to you is not going to ruin our relationship, that you're still going to appreciate me for who I am and that you're going to understand that I still appreciate you for who you are and be safe with that. Right. And then the next time we see each other, it's not awkward. It's not hard. And I don't think that we practice that enough because I think that people are so worried about their performance and so worried about disappointing their parents that they can't own the blame and therefore they project it onto something or somebody else. So as parents, you're saying we were a little more excited about our kids' failures yes, and see them as opportunities yes. to process the failure yes, instead of being critical or allowing that failure to hang there on the kid right. and just let them have to make a decision or have a belief that, well, I'm just not capable right. Right. and I'll never do that again. Right, right. And that's what you don't want. Right. You want the person to process. I think of a story... I love this story. I heard an interview with Sarah Blakely. She is the CEO of Spanx. Okay. She created that company. And she was asked in an interview, what was the greatest gift you had from your parents in preparing you to become a billionaire? Because you broke through all kinds of barriers as a woman yeah. going into this arena. And the people were attacking you and critical of you, and you withstood it no matter what. Right. And what was that gave you that strength? And he said, at the end of every week, my dad said, okay, well, now we need to talk. What did you fail at this week? Yeah, nice. And he purposely started a conversation with them about the failure they had, what did they learn from it, and what they can do differently next time. And I think we need to embrace those failures and have it be a teachable moment. Yeah. I remember my dad putting me in situations as a young man that he knew that there was a good chance I would make a mistake yeah. and not complete it properly. Yeah. And this was more physical things, like yeah. he would have me go out and grade the yard with a tractor so the water would run off in one direction. Okay. And the next rain comes, the water would run back the other direction. <laughs> right. And he said, okay, Ray, what'd you learn? Yeah. The process, now go back and do it again. Right. So dad knew that. And I think I probably broke so many tools and tractors and appliances <laughs> with my dad had because I overstressed him and overstrained yeah. him. But he was more than willing to just replace it because yeah. the lesson I had was more important than him having to pay yes. for another plow tip or right. whatever it was. Right. And I think as parents, if we did more of that and really helped the person process through the failure. Right. I wanted to give a shout out to Brene Brown. I've been reading some of her things. And one of the things I've read recently was how perfection and fear are ruining our employees, I think is how it is in her book. But I say that about our children as a parent. And I say that about our students as an educator, that perfection and the fear of failure is destroying our kids. Like we need to let them fail and we need to let them understand that perfection cannot be attained. There's always gonna be something. But the other part of that is the balance of giving them a growth mindset. Right. Just because you failed one time doesn't mean you're gonna to continue to fail. And it doesn't mean that you're gonna throw your hands up in the air. Like I was told by a math teacher once when I was young, you don't get it. Stop raising your hand. You're wasting everybody's time. 
at that time in my life, I thought, I'm stupid. I can't do math, right? But what I learned as an adult is that teacher just couldn't figure out how to teach me because people learn differently, right? right? And so I just have always thought for so many years of my life, I will fail at math, so throw your hands up in the air and don't even try it. Well, then I ended up being a banker, working with math all the time, right? And you're just like, okay, we have to figure out how to teach our kids. It's okay to fail, but that doesn't mean that you're never going to get it right. You've right. got to keep at it. So yeah, we just need to do that. We need to keep encouraging them to keep trying and keep working at it. Creating that belief in your child will reduce their anxiety yes. in the end. It reminds me of a story that just happened this week. I get a call from my daughter. She's down in Disney and she's at the animal kingdom. And my granddaughter, who had just turned seven this week, she was there in the room and mom and dad were trying to get things ready to move to the next place they were staying. Okay. And Emerson and Julian were kind of in the way, so they mm -hmm. sent them out. Why don't you just go out and watch the animals out there? Mm -hmm. Well, Emerson, to be lying toward it, hit the door wall. She thought it was open, oh, no. face first, and oh, just no. about knocked her out. Oh, no. She cried and cried. So the next day they're telling the story to grandma. Mm -hmm. Grandma said, well, you didn't know better. You know, you thought the door was open. Your mom sent you out there. You know, it was really your mom's fault that the door wasn't open when she sent you out there. So she was really blaming the mom for that. And Emerson looked at her, put her hands on the hips and said, no, it was my choice to run. I didn't pay attention to make sure the door was open. I'm responsible right. for that. Right, right. And I thought, yes. Yes. Of course. Taking credit. Yes. And Brittany had to come and call me and tell me that story because one of the things I told her a long time ago when she asked me, Dad, you parented a lot of kids and you also have been teaching a lot of kids. Mm -hmm. You have my permission to come and suggest things to me that you think we could do better as parents. Wow. And not too many parents you have that opportunity. No, they don't. And I asked Chris about it, and Chris says, absolutely, I feel the same way. I want right. you to come to me. And I have been very careful and very selective about my advice. Right. As I, because I don't want to abuse it. Right. And one of the things I told him, I said, you have to teach your kids to take personal responsibility yeah. for the things that happened in their life. Yeah and not rescue them, right. not enable them. Right. And we talked about that, and they, and they, of course, okay, and they ask yeah. questions. They use me as wise counsel yeah. to really make a difference. So yeah. it's very exciting to see Emerson think in yeah. that level. Yeah. Emerson, when she first saw my book, Ride the Elephant, The Journey to True Success, she says, Grandpa, this is a beautiful book. Can you write a book, because it's a little above yeah. your head. Grandpa, <laughs> can you write a book for me and call it Ride the Baby Elephant? Oh, that's sweet. Yeah, so. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things I think that we need to remember is that, for example, a, a student makes a wrong decision at school and the parent walks in the office and says, I'm so embarrassed at my child. And I just look at him and say, I do not for one minute think that you are yeah. teaching your child to cheat on a test to be late to school. We don't believe that is happening. You have to remember they have their own minds and they make their own decisions. And this is really not about you. Yeah. And so don't make it about you. Let's teach them. You made this mistake. You made a wrong decision. What did you learn from it? And let's not make the mistake again. We all still love you. You didn't you know, go down a rung on our ladder because you made a, a bad choice or a bad decision. So parents need to understand that educators are not out there going, oh, they're teaching them how to cheat on their tests. No, we don't, right? Yeah. It's about the kid. It's not about the parent. Yes. 
Well, we have to remind ourselves of that. Yes, yeah. we do. Well, Julie, this has been very exciting to have you in town, putting you on the spot here to give us some great wisdom and wise counsel for us all to take home and take into our situations as if we're educators, take situation as parents and what we can do different. So I want to thank you for that. Thank you for having me. I want to say people are people are people. No one is perfect. Everyone has gifts. Everyone has struggles. And we all just need to figure out how to love people for who they are and just help each other and support each other and be encouraging instead of critical and discouraging. And I think if we do that, we can change that tone. Then everyone isn't going to be worried about who's to blame when the bad decisions are made or the wrong decisions. So thank you for having me. You're welcome. Very well said. Thank you everyone else for joining us. Make sure you join us next week for Ride the Elephant Today for another great podcast. Have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. Your feedback is important to us, and we'd like to hear from you. Email your comments and questions to ray at raymckinley.com. Join us next week for another informative podcast with Dr. Ray McKinley. Have a great week. Thank you.